Amen. Amen. Thank you, musicians. Thank you, worship team, for all your help. Isn't it good to worship God? We enjoy it. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you have them, or on your smartphone app, to the book of Philippians, chapter 1. We continue with our sermon series today. Our sermon series is called Choose Joy. How many of you accepted my challenge from last week? How many of you remember it? My challenge was that you choose joy rather than worry, stress, and fear. Remember? And I told you that if worry, stress, and fear worked out better for me you, for you, you could come into my office and tell me why. I haven't had anybody come in yet. So I hope you chose joy. Um, here in Philippians chapter number one, we're going to begin, and, and I think I, I think I put on your uh, U version outline that I would start with verse fourteen. But I'm going to give, go back to verse twelve just to give a little bit of context before we get to verse fourteen. Paul said, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So that it has become throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. I've told you before, I love this book. I love this letter to the Philippians because it deals with some very practical issues that I think every one of us face from time to time, even in our own lives. In this passage that we just read, Paul is wanting the believers in the church in Philippi to learn an important truth. It's a truth that he's learned from his own experience, and here it is. His incarceration was proof that there are no accidents with God. God doesn't make mistakes. Nothing happens outside of God's A, plan A. How many of you know God doesn't have a plan B? We sometimes think, you know... (laughs) God, this isn't, this isn't the way it's supposed to work, so let's move on to plan B. God only has one plan, and nothing that has happened has ever happened outside of God's perfect plan. He doesn't make mistakes. There are no accidents. 
And Paul is telling us here that instead of his ministry of the gospel being stifled as a result of his incarceration, the gospel is actually being advanced because of his incarceration. Now, I don't recommend incarceration to any of you. But in, in this case, Paul finds himself in chains in a Roman dungeon And it looks for all intents and purposes as if Paul's ministry has come to a grinding halt. But God has a purpose even in the midst of Paul's incarceration. And that purpose is that there are people who are in charge of Paul's incarceration that are going to hear the gospel that would have never had the opportunity to hear the gospel any other way. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all come to repentance. Even Romans, even evil people, God loves everyone. He has a He has a longing for everyone to come to experience the good news that comes to us through Jesus Christ. And He will go to great lengths to get that good news to people. He makes no mistakes. There are no accidents. Now, the advance of the gospel came as a result, Paul tells us, of the entire imperial guard, along with many others who were hearing about Jesus during the course of his incarceration. Now, the imperial guard is a reference to what was called in that day the Praetorian Guard, a squadron of Roman soldiers assigned with the task of guarding prisoners. Everyone who came into contact with the Apostle Paul heard about Jesus. His fellow prisoners, the Roman guard, the jailer, all of them were hearing about Jesus and many were being saved as a result of what they were hearing. In fact... Those, Paul tells us that those who were hearing about Jesus were becoming more and more bold in the sharing of their testimony, and as a result of that, even more were becoming saved. In verses 14 and 15 that we read from, Paul tells us that among those who have become brothers in Christ, they preach the good news as a result of their love for Jesus and as a result of their love for Paul and his ministry. But then he tells us that there are some who are preaching Jesus, but they're doing it out of self-ambition, believing that in preaching, by preaching Jesus, they're causing Paul even more distress in his imprisonment. So what does all of that mean, and how does that apply to you and I today? Well, if you look at verse 18... After considering all of the motives behind those who are preaching Jesus, Paul asks a question. The question is simply, what then? Uh, Let me uh, just say it this way. It's a first century equivalent, uh, the kind of a response that mirrors a question that we often ask when someone tries to stir us up by trying to discourage us because we aren't doing the job as well as someone else is doing it. And to those kinds of things, we just say, so what? Any of you ever asked the question, so what? That's what Paul's saying. So what? The gospel is being preached, 
And preaching of the gospel is more important than any ulterior motives they might have in trying to bring pain and distress to me. Now, here's why that's so important. For Paul, knowing that others were preaching Jesus, even those who considered themselves to be his rivals, even those that considered their preaching of the gospel could could bring Paul heartache, he chooses to respond with this what then, or so what, however you prefer it. Christ is being preached, and because Christ is being preached, I choose to find joy. Now, many of us have get hung up in that. Uh, there are people out there who are trying to hurt me. There are people are out there that are trying to make my situation worse than it already is. So how can I be joyful in the midst of that? And so many times that's where we get ourselves caught up. Paul says, hey, I know they're out there. I know what they're doing. I know why they're doing it. But I have made a specific choice to choose joy even in the midst of those circumstances. You see, Paul didn't need those who preach Jesus out of rivalry to start liking him in order for him to be joyful. Um, let me just say this. Paul's just as human as any one of us are. He had feelings. He felt discouragement because they were preaching Christ with insincere motives. But again, he chose the perspective that said, hey, Christ is being preached. And it's not about who's doing the preaching. It's about Christ being preached. He wasn't so concerned about what was happening or what may happen to him so long as nothing happened to the good news of Jesus. Now, here's why I mention that. I believe that Paul had an understanding that more pastors and preachers need today. And it's this. The message preached is more important than the man preaching the message. Did you catch that? The message preached is more important than the man preaching the message. You know, I look at my own life, ministry, now spans 29 years as a senior pastor after serving for 12 years as a youth pastor. I've got to tell you, I've come a long way in my ministry. And I'm going to tell you how. There was a time when I, as a youth pastor, and even the early years of being a senior pastor, was more concerned about pleasing those whom I ministered to than I was about proclaiming the truth of Jesus. Do you have any idea how hard it is to be a people pleaser? Anyone? I learned from experience that it is impossible to please everyone all of the time. In those early years of my ministry, I felt that if I didn't please everyone all of the time, I was letting them down. Let me just very honestly and very transparently tell you this morning that trying to do the work of ministry under that type of pressure literally made me a messed up pastor. It really did. The pressure was so great. And, and, uh, you know, as, as I said, being transparent with you, I still fight that instinct today. 
I mean, you'd think after this long, well, you ought to be over it by now, but you know what? There's just some inherent instincts that we have that never leave, and we constantly have to fight against them to keep them from rearing their ugly heads in our lives again. There are times when I become so anxious when preaching something from the Word that I know that someone listening in my congregation is going to have a problem with. Why do I still fight that? Because I don't want to offend anyone. And yet the fact of the matter is that there are things in God's Word that are offensive. But that doesn't mean they shouldn't be preached. It took me a while to learn that. So instinctively, I still try to find ways to say things in such a way that what is said comes across as being lovingly concerned. (laughs) Rather than just telling it like it is, offensive or not. Now, it's not all wrong. I, I believe that it was Abraham Lincoln who borrowed the words of a poem that said this, you can please some of the people some of the time, but you can't please all of the people all of the time. So when I say that I've come a long way, what I mean is this. It is vitally important to preach the Word, even if it hurts. Can I just ask you a question? How many of you have ever come to a church service and the message preached stepped all over your toes? Well, I got some work to do, because not every hand was raised. I can tell you that almost without exception, every message that I preach is directed to me, if not more than directed to you, because I have this problem. I have a rebellious human nature. Now, I know probably none of the rest of you ever war with that. But I have this rebellious human nature that needs to be made more like Jesus. Day by day, week by week. I need to be changed from glory to glory every day of my life. Well, let me just get offensive. So do you. So do every one of us. We all fall short when it comes to a comparison between us and Jesus. Is that okay? We all fall short. So we all have growth that can take place in our lives. Paul instructs us in Ephesians chapter 4 verses 15 and 16 that we are to speak the truth in love. Which makes the body grow, he goes on to say. The body being the church. So that the church builds itself up in love. Now perhaps you haven't considered this before. But if you speak even the hard truth of God's Word in such a way as to show loving concern, you will find that those to whom you speak that truth will grow in spiritual maturity to the point where they too will speak the truth lovingly to others. Can I just take a real short rabbit trail here for just a moment? There are some probably in every church family, in every, every church body, that feel called and appointed to be the moral police of the church. Okay? I mean, we're just being honest, right? 
There are some that feel that they are called to be the moral police of the church and to enforce morals on everybody that comes and to inform them when they aren't living up to those expectations. Let me just tell you something. There's everything right about that if it's done in the right way. If it's done with love and concern for that person's heart and soul, that's fine. But let me also add this. Make sure it's God that's leading you to enforce those morals. Because if it's you, you are elevating yourself to a place of importance, not only above God, but you are taking yourself to a place of importance as an authority of God's Word and lording it over someone else. That's when you run into problems. We are to speak the truth in love. And I'll just say this. There are some of us who need to take some lessons in how to speak the truth in love. I myself qualify. That's why I feel this pressure every once in a while to, to try to... Well, let me just describe it to you the way, way it happens. <laughs> you see, the truth sets people free, right? Jesus said... You shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The truth doesn't bind, it liberates, it sets free. So I've grown to the point where my chief concern is not making people happy. Not being a people pleaser. And if you think about it, Making people happy is neither possible nor my responsibility. My responsibility is to preach the truth. Got to be careful how I say this. If the shoe fits, wear it. You know, I I mean, you see, I, I finally read the part of the book that says when I stand before God... I don't have to answer for how you felt about me. I have to answer for how I handled the truth. Now, there's a huge difference between those two things. You see, Paul here is ready to die at the stake for the sake of the gospel. It doesn't matter if it's the possibility of being beheaded or, or burned at the stake or being fed to lions. He's saying, I'm ready to die for Jesus' sake. And I can now tell you that for me, on Sunday morning, there are times when I take this pulpit when I feel as if I could charge hell with a water pistol. But when I'm preparing my message, the week and a half before I preach it, inevitably my feet will start to get a little cold. Because that old people-pleasing instinct that I told you about a little while ago tries to rear its ugly head. Here's how it happens. First, I'll be preparing what I'm going to say, and then this thought hits me. Well, I wonder if so-and-so is going to be there a week from Sunday when I preach this message. And if so, how are they going to take what I've just typed into my outline? And then I'll mull over what I've typed over and over and, and, and perhaps try to soften it or, or tone it down. 
in order for it to, to be digestible to everyone. That is until God slaps me upside of the head and reminds me that it's his word and I'm not to change it. I'm not to make it palatable or digestible for anyone. He said it the way he wants it said and it's my responsibility as a messenger of the gospel to tell you what it says, not what I want it to say. Thank you. How many of you would like for me to move on now? What, what I'm saying is, when God slaps me upside of the head, it's like he slaps me with some holy boldness and allows me to declare along with the Apostle Paul, so what if somebody's offended by the truth of God's word? So what? If I preach the word, it becomes the responsibility of those who hear it to deal with it. Paul told his student Timothy, he said, Timothy, preach the word. Don't preach some commentary that somebody has written about what they think the word says. Preach the word. Paul is saying, who cares if there are people out there preaching Jesus, hoping that in some way it can be used against me, or maybe even people who somehow find amusement because I'm suffering in prison. I mean, think about that. If there are people who, who think they're making Paul's situation worse and continue to do it so they can make his situation worse and worse, Paul is really saying this. They're the ones that have the problem if, they're finding, if they find my suffering to be a source of their joy. You see, there's something really wrong with that. When we preach out of wrong motivation. Uh, I, 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 let me just point out something else here that catches my attention. I've thought about this as I prepared this message. Why is it that Paul seems to be so casual uh, about this matter here of somebody else preaching the gospel to cause him pain and suffering? And then back in Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, there he says, If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one that you've received, let him be accursed. What's the difference? Well, here's the difference. The ones in that passage in Galatians, the word contrary means another or an opposite gospel, not a gospel of the same kind. He's referring to someone who's preaching an entirely different message of good news. So these passages don't contradict one another. In Galatians, someone is messing with the content of the gospel and that kind of preaching needs to be rejected. But in Philippi, where, that he's writing to in this letter, there were people who were preaching Jesus and him crucified, but were, who were doing it from a wrong motivation to make Paul miserable. To that he says, so what? The word's being preached. Jesus is being lifted up. And in that I rejoice, and again I say I rejoice. Personal opinion time. I sometimes wonder as a pastor if it would be easier to go to a lot of churches in America today and preach heresy and be accepted than it is to preach the good news of Jesus and be rejected. Or be accepted, I mean. You suppose it is? I, I, think, I think we've become, as Paul describes in another place, People who have itching ears, we want to hear what we want to hear. We, we don't want to hear something that 
is difficult for us or something that, as I said a while ago, is offensive. We want to we want to hear what we want to hear. We want to hear how wonderful we are. We want to hear how good we're doing at this thing called living for Jesus. We we, we want to be we want to be congratulated, patted on the back, if you will, as opposed to having our toes stepped on from time to time. Again, hear this. When we get our image caught up in the proclamation of truth, we are preaching Christ with wrong motivation. We're attempting to elevate self rather than to magnify and glorify God. You know, we need to learn that when someone rejects the truth, and Jesus told us this. Jesus, Jesus told us this exact same thing. When someone rejects the truth, they're not rejecting us. They're rejecting Jesus. You know, if we get our little feelings hurt because somebody rejects us preaching the truth, we need to examine again how committed are we to the Word. Are we committed to the Word or are we committed to making ourselves look good and keeping everybody happy? But Paul says to that congregation in Galatia, if they're preaching a lie and calling it the truth, that person preaching it and the message... They are to be rejected or anathema. They are to be considered accursed. Don't listen to that message. Let me just give you some modern-day examples of that. People who preach that a relationship with Jesus is free from suffering. That's heresy. People who are preaching prosperity. If you serve Jesus... You can look at him like a blue light special at Kmart. You can ask for it and he's going to give it. That's heresy. You see why it's easier? You see why I wonder if it's easier to go around America and preach heresy and have it be accepted rather than preaching the, the truth of the gospel and have it accepted? Because people want to hear what they want to hear. And what's happening in America today in a lot of churches is we're taking bits and pieces of the Word of God. Well, I like this part, but I'm not so crazy about this part. So, so I'm going to have this part be a part of my life, but friends, Jesus is Lord of the church. That means that He's the Master. He calls the shots. He doesn't tell us what parts we can like and what parts we can dislike. It's the whole counsel of God that we need to be concerned about and that we need to be living out in our lives. Again, moving on. Verse 19 is a personal comment from Paul. Here he is, perhaps with only the light of a small window in this dungeon, chained to a Roman guard, saying that he knows this is going to turn out for his deliverance. Now that's a positive statement if I ever heard one under those circumstances. He knows that Christ is going to be exalted, if not in his life, then through his death. And he's not ignorant, for he realizes that the reality of his death may be imminent. It could happen at any moment. But he refuses to live under shame or to be negative about his future. Oh, I can't go on without commenting on that. How many of you have a pet peeve? 
You know what a pet peeve is, something that just gets under your skin and you can't deal with it? I have one pet peeve in life. You know what it is? Negative people. Negative people just sap me. It's like when they walk into a room of clear, bright sunshine, all of a sudden it gets cloudy. All of a sudden, everything seems to become negative. I mean, you get through talking to them and you just want to walk over and kick your dog, you know? Paul refuses to become negative about his future. And in all boldness, he then exclaims that Christ is going to be magnified, that is lifted up, whether Christ chooses to take Paul home by death or allows him a number of years left to minister. And that brings us to verse 21. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. It's probably the key verse in this entire letter. And here's why. Supplant the name of Christ in that verse 21 with any other word, and it has a way of getting your attention. For example, for me to live is money. And to die is to leave it all behind. For me to live is fame. And to die is to soon be forgotten. For me to live is power and influence. And to die is to lose it all. For me to live is having things and possessions. And to die is to be able to take none of them with me. Now, I don't mean to be disrespectful to the dead, but have you noticed that in a coffin, there's only room for a body? There's no room to put much else in there. Neither have I seen a hearse with a trailer hitch. That's why Jesus has to be the central part of our joy. Money can't do it. Fame can't do it. Having stuff can't do it. Having power, having influence can't bring it. Only Jesus. And when Jesus is the center of one's life as the storms and the disappointments and the shattering experiences of one's life occur, He is with us. He lives in us. And that person who's going through all of that stuff doesn't need someone else to help them feel whole or something else to add to their happiness to bring them to a place of being joyful. That joy comes from knowing Jesus. When those times come, and even in the good times, you can say, Lord, it's you and me. Whether by life or by death, Lord, it's you and me. Man, I can't tell you what a joy that is. I, I, I can't even put it into words. Whether by life or death, Paul is saying, I get more of you, Jesus. I get more. The Living Bible translation of that 21st verse reads this way. For to me, living is Christ and dying is even better. You see, the secret is the mindset. 
Focusing on Christ as the center of our lives frees us from having to pursue something in order to find joy. Now, those of you who are history students, you have probably read, and as I was, uh, made to memorize and quote the Declaration of Independence. How many of you had to do that in school? At least the Bill of Rights part. (coughs) In that first part of the Declaration of Independence, there is a statement, and it reads like this. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Did you catch that? The pursuit of happiness. Now let me just say that those may be our rights, and I pray that we're willing to die for them. But I've come to the point where I now question the last three words of that phrase, the pursuit of happiness. Because I'm not convinced that happiness comes by pursuing it. And if you don't believe that, let me ask the question. When was the last time you found happiness and joy from anything outside of yourself? What is there that we can pursue that will bring the kind of joy and happiness that the Declaration speaks of? I know of nothing external that can bring that. Certainly nothing that has a price tag, no possession of any kind, no choice of a friend or a spouse, nothing external, only Jesus. And if you want to consider Jesus a pursuit, look at it this way. He's been pursuing you much harder than you've been pursuing him. And he will never stop pursuing you. I want you to hear this, friends. You nor your spouse, neither one of you can make the other one happy. You you cannot bring the other person to a place of being full of joy. In fact, neither one of you can make the other one anything. It's a choice. I can do what I can to contribute in a positive way to the joy and happiness of my mate, but ultimately it is her choice whether or not she's going to be happy. Are you with me? Now let me just describe it. I want to put a smile on your face, okay? So let me describe it. If I were to buy Brenda for Christmas this year, the finest catcher's mitt and the best baseball bat that I could find. Now, why am I doing that? Because she knows that I love baseball. And if I buy her a catcher's mitt and the the best bat I can find, we can go out in the yard and play catch and play ball. So she's got a choice to make after I present her with that fancy catcher's mitt and that fancy bat. She can either be happy with what I bought for her, or more likely, she will let me know what a jerk I am for only thinking about my own desires. But that's a choice only she can make. I can't make it for her. And in the same way, joy is a choice. Paul is choosing joy. I challenged you last week with whatever the stresses and fears and worries that you have. 
in your everyday life to choose joy rather than those joy stealers. Joy is a choice. It's the result of a decision that one makes. If there's any pursuit in it, it's an internal pursuit, an inner journey that leads one to joy in spite of their circumstances. Leaning on another human being for your source of joy will not work. Why? Because we humans have a tendency from time to time to let one another down. In Christ... In Christ, he will never let you down. You may not see it at the time, but over time you will see that his ways are perfect. That his, his decisions for the route that your, ta- your life takes are the perfect decisions. How many of you have ever wanted to do something really bad and you felt a check in your spirit or some other brother or sister in the Lord came up and said, hey, I don't feel good about you doing that, and so you didn't do it, and you're aggravated about it because you didn't Over time, you saw, man, that was a really good thing I didn't do it. Anybody? We have lunch afterwards, so I can take as long as I want. When I was a teenager... I thought, you know, when I get out of high school and college, uh, me and uh, many of you know Dwayne Skipper. Me and Dwayne were traveling around the state, uh, actually four states, singing in churches, and I loved it. And, and you know, at that time, gospel music was really popular, and there were a lot of lot of big groups that were traveling around the country: the the Oak Ridge Boys, and and the Imperials, and the Statesmen, and I mean, the Goodmans. Go down the list. And I thought, man, that's the life that I want to live. That's what I want to do. God, I'm giving myself to you in ministry, and this is where we're going to go, God. (laughs) And an opportunity came for me to do just that. And my dad said, Terry, you better think about that long and hard. And my response is, Dad... I'm going into ministry. What can be wrong with that? And he just said, I'm just saying, you better think about it really hard. Well, cutting to the chase and making the story much shorter. Not necessarily because I thought about it, just because I trusted my dad and his judgment. And I didn't take that opportunity. I found out within the next year that if I'd taken that opportunity, more than likely I would have been stranded in some big city somewhere around the country with no money, with no way to get home, with no equipment, and with no ministry. Are you with me? Was I ever glad that I listened to someone's counsel before I made my choice? Now, let me just quickly give you three concepts that need our focus. Our circumstances, other people, and the future. These three things represent things that can cause people either happiness or disappointment. If, however, you put Christ into the center of each of those three things, the outcome changes significantly. Let me give you an example. When Christ is the center, 
He broadens the dimensions of my circumstances. Let me say that again. When Christ is the center, he broadens... What did I say? He he broadens the uh, 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 dimensions of my circumstances. In part one of this sermon series, I shared with you, if you'll remember... That one of Mother Teresa's requirements for being part of her feeding ministry in India, in Calcutta, India, was to have a joyful attitude. You remember that? Let me just say this. There's nothing about feeding people who are starving or treating people with leprosy that can bring anyone to feel joy or happiness. But an inner joy, however, will allow those who do that work to reach out in love and take them in and feel joyful about what they've done. Another example. When Christ is the center, He delivers me from my preoccupation with others. I care less and less about pleasing someone else. Now that doesn't mean that I'm indifferent to anyone else's feelings. It simply means that I choose to live with Christ as my focus and not them. Can I just say to you that is really important? To have Christ as your focus rather than someone else. It'll change your life. Trust me, I found it to be true. And I'm sure many of you have as well. One more example. When Christ is the center, He calms my fears about the future. If I have Christ, like Paul said, death is only going to result in a life that's much better than this one. So much better that I can't even put into words how much better it's going to be. Now, quickly, let me ask you to think about those three statements. The first statement, when Christ is the center... He broadens the dimensions of my circumstances. That ought to bring you confidence. The second statement, when Christ is my center, excuse me, he calms my fears of the, that's the third one, excuse me. Uh, When Christ is the center, he delivers me from preoccupation with others. That should bring you joy. The third one, when Christ is my center, he delivers, I'm getting all messed up here. He calms my fears about the future. That should bring you hope. Bring you hope. Think about those things. Confidence. Joy. Hope. We all want those things, don't we? The way to do it is to make Christ your focus. One person fully focused and Christ-centered puts our world together and makes it fit. And I close with an illustration. You've probably heard it before. I may have even used it before, but it's so perfect for here. A father who comes home from work exhausted and only has aspirations of kicking his feet up in his recliner. The problem is that when he walks in the door of the house, his four-year-old daughter comes bouncing toward him saying, Daddy, Daddy, I've been waiting all day for you to come home so we can play. Now, the dad doesn't want to ignore his daughter and wanting to honor her love and desire to be with him. He formulates this idea. He sees a newspaper on the the coffee table, and he goes and gets a pair of scissors, and he cuts a page out of the newspaper with a picture that has the countries of the world 
on it. And he cuts it into 25 to 30 pieces saying, surely my four-year-old won't know how to put each country in its proper place. And he thinks that'll take her enough time that he can grab a power nap. So he goes and sits down and closes his eyes. And just as he's falling asleep, the little girl starts screaming, Daddy, Daddy, I did it. I have all the pieces put together. And he's just, he's blown away. How can this four-year-old know where all the countries of the world go and put them together? He says, how did you do that, sweetie? And she says, well, Daddy, here's how I did it. If you turn the pieces over, there was a picture of a man on the back of the page. And if you put the man together, the world comes together. Out of the mouths of babes, right? I love that illustration. I'm guessing that there are some of us, perhaps even here this morning, who've been working on the wrong side of the paper. You're trying to make sense of the world. Let me just give you a suggestion. Take this child's approach. Put the man together first. Put yourself together with the man who can make your life whole. When you do that, you'll find that your world gets a lot more tolerable, a lot more digestible. You're here this morning, your world is falling apart. You're trying to put it back together. You've missed the man who can make your world whole. Quit trying to find umpteen different ways to put your world together. Just put your faith in Jesus and make Him the centerpiece of your entire life. Worship team, would you come please? Now, here's here's the deal. I know that everyone in this room this morning, now I'm taking a leap of faith here, okay? I know that everyone in this room this morning has good sense. Okay? <laughs> You're smart enough to make your world manageable. But I'm telling you that your intellect will not bring you lasting joy. It doesn't matter how good a manager of your life you are, it's not going to bring you lasting joy because only Jesus can do that. Only Jesus. But if you came here this morning and you're lacking joy in your life, you're experiencing life and all of the things that it throws at you and it's caused your world to somewhat fall apart, I've committed myself this morning to tell you the truth rather than what you want to hear me say. I I, I want to relieve your pain, but I'm not going to tell you something that will relieve your pain for a day or two and then it all comes flooding back at you. There are fixes for that. You can go take an antidepressant in six weeks, you might be feeling better. You might be feeling better, but you may not be joyful. Only Jesus. Only Jesus can make your world whole. That's why he said...
I am the way, the truth, and the life. Emphasis on the. As in, I'm the only way, the only truth, and the only life that can bring you lasting satisfaction. Would you bow with me, please? Lord Jesus, this morning, I really believe in my heart of hearts that everybody in this room wants joy in their life. I believe that to the core of my being. But I also believe, Lord, that many of us do not have that lasting inner joy that helps us to cope with life and all of its situations in a way that will allow us to, to overcome the obstacles that we face and still maintain a joyful attitude. So that tells me that we need your help. Lord, some of us have become so set in our ways that the pursuit, if there is a pursuit of happiness and joy, gets compromised because we're unwilling to change some of the things and some of the things that we do that will allow joy to become a part of who we are. And so, Lord, this morning what I'm asking you is for every one of us in this room who desires joy to just say to you, change my heart, God. Help me to understand I am worthy of having the joy that is so unspeakable and full of glory I, I am worthy, Lord, of being loved. I am worthy of, of, of being able to, to overcome the obstacles that life has thrown at me, some of which were made by my own decisions. But God, you don't want me to live under the, the curse of those decisions forever. You want me to be able to look at them and consider them as being water under the bridge but life goes on and life can go on with joy. If that's you here this morning with your heads bowed, your eyes closed, just raise a hand to tell that to Jesus. Lord, I want to experience joy. I want to choose joy, God. Just raise it up. Raise it up. Hold it high. Tell Jesus. You're telling me too because I want to pray for you. I'm seeing about 10 or 11 hands. Maybe 12, 13, 14. Now stand to your feet. Boy, if I could just magically say, Abracadabra, you have joy. Trust me, I'd do it. But I neither believe in that nor can I do it if I did. But Jesus can. So as we sing this this morning, again, as we do every Sunday, if you really mean it, ask Jesus to change you. Would you sing with me? Change my heart, oh God. Make it ever true. Change my heart, oh God. 
May I be like you. Sing that again. Change my heart, O God. Make it ever true. Change my heart, O God. May I be like you. He's the potter, we're the clay. For you are the potter, I am the clay. Mold me and make me, this is what I my heart, oh God, may I be like you. Now, here's the challenge. I told you I'm going to give you a challenge every week of this series. When we say, change my heart, oh God, those are just words. You have to allow the changes to take place. God's not going to beat you over the head and say, you're going to have joy, Ron. Ron's got to make a choice to say, I want to have joy. And Jesus, I believe that you're the source. So Jesus, I'm asking you, I'm giving you full permission to change what needs to be changed in me so that I can become the joy of the Lord to people around me. Now, having said that, I was one of those kids that evidently my mom and dad think, thought a lot of change needs to take place in this kid. And they had means by which they instituted those changes. You know what I mean. And I'm proud to say today, most of them worked. Because I didn't like the means. Okay? That's not how God does it. But I will tell you this. It may feel like the whipping post. It may feel like the whipping post to allow God to do, make the changes that he wants in your life. <laughs> this just hit me. You know I'm weird, so you'll understand this. I woke up this morning with a stiff neck. And here I am talking about stiff-necked people. A lot of us get stiff-necked when it comes to ha- allowing God to make the changes that need to be made in our lives. Maybe God's just reminding me, Terry, this would be a good sermon illustration. I'm going to give you a stiff neck today. Don't be stiff necked. 
Matter of fact, the Bible even uses that terminology. Allow him to do what needs to be done in you. I promise you, you won't regret it. Let's sing it again as a way of dismissal. Change my heart, oh God. Make 